I just want to make it clear that this is a big problem. There's a study that Intercom said that users who try their app for the first time, 40 to 60% actually end up signing up once and leaving right away, right? That, that really says that a lot of companies that I've talked to, a lot of growth teams, there's two things that they focus on. The first thing they focus on is how do we get more signups, which is acquisition. And on the other end, what kind of features should we implement for our current users? So user onboarding is at this middle, it's like that middle child that everybody's forgotten. Welcome to Top of Mind, a show where we speak with top marketers, creators, and leaders who are shaping the culture around us. I'm Stuart Hillhouse, and I believe that through great marketing, you can earn the privilege of occupying a tiny sliver of your customer's already overflowing brain. Join me today as we learn what it takes to become top of mind. For most software businesses, we only hear of them once they're in the late stages of growth. This is once they've hit a certain critical mass where spread happens to new users through word of mouth or people asking, what app is that? This is often a good sign of product market fit. But in the early days, before a software might have product market fit, they must find ways to attract users and choose which features to put their resources towards. That's when SaaS founders turn to my guest. He's a product-led growth marketer for SaaS businesses, as well as the host of Growth Today and Product-Led Podcasts. Join me live today. We've got Ramley John. How are you doing, Ramley? I'm doing pretty good, Stuart. I'm really excited to chat about product-led growth, uh, onboarding, and anything else. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a it's a big topic and it's not one that we've covered yet and it's one I'm not super super familiar with. So, do you mind kind of firstly describing what we mean when we talk about product-led growth and and how you uh, fit into that piece? Yeah, product-led growth actually started in the B2C space. A lot of um, B2C apps, specifically mobile apps where even mobile gaming apps where what they expect from users, because they have very low likelihood of paying, is they offer a free version of the app. And then, you know, you get they hook you in, and then finally they get you to pay for that coins for, I don't know, zo zombie, whatever, or other things like that. And a lot of B2C apps have kind of structured their go-to-market strategy like this, knowing that consumers are not really willing to pay for apps. And what happened in the last year or two is that it's kind of switched over to more B2B SaaS apps, where traditionally what you expect from SaaS apps is you expect to get on a sales call with a salesperson, they're going to qualify you, and then they expect you to pay $250 to $500 a month per, per month, but on a yearly contract. So you're paying like tens of thousands of dollars up front. And Things have changed. Like as buyers, we are we have more options now. We shop around. We shop around not just for at Costco. We shop around for even our calendar calendaring app, whether that's Calendly or something like that. So that's where product-led growth essentially is. Is where it's a go-to-market strategy that a lot of B two B SaaS apps has adopted, where they offer a free or a freemium 
a free trial version of their app first before they expect people to switch over. Some big companies have made this transition that really made this in the mainstream. A big example is HubSpot. Traditionally, HubSpot has been, you expect to pay $500 to $1,000 a month for HubSpot marketing. And just a few years ago, they completely kind of upturned their business model where they offered a free version of HubSpot and the lowest price right now for HubSpot is actually $5 per month. If you're a startup, you can buy HubSpot for $5 a month at the low end. And as your business grows, you can end up paying a lot more, but it really does grow with you. You see other apps like MailChimp, Wistia, Dropbox have now really essentially taken hold of this. And a lot of businesses are using this go-to-market strategy of offering uh, a free a free or free free trial version of the product and really leading w- and that's where the product led name comes in is product led you're leading with your product you're you know, you know people get to try a product first before they even might might have a conversation with a sales team versus something like a sales led business where you would have to get on a demo you have to talk to somebody you have to jump on that sales call before you even experience the value of the product so that's sales led versus product-led essentially. There's definitely hybrids of both, which you see like some apps are doing. Right. So it really allows the the consumer or the end user or the, even the decision buyer to experience that application, the, the value it brings. I've heard other people describe it as in the product world as like the aha moment of, mm, of yeah. like, there's a hump where a new user is kind of like, okay, like this is kind of like that old thing we used to use. I can see how this would be valuable, but we're not there yet. Oh, but this thing, like, aha, this this feature or this aspect of the product is going to save me and my position like dozens of hours a month. It's going to save us tons of money. It's going to mm. get us more sales. Like there needs to be an aha moment in that demo that convinces that user that they're ready to buy and they can't go back. Mm. They can't unsee that aha moment. Mm. Yeah, exactly. It's it's the Costco model. They, you, you walk into Costco, they give you free stuff. You Once you once you try that popcorn or chip, they're hoping uh-huh. that it tastes so good. And like, I, I forgot where I read this, but the statistics you know, with Costco is like the stuff they give away for free to try out, they sell 23% or something like that more because they're, you know, people try it out. That's that's essentially the riskiest part of the, the purchase is, will I like this? Will it be, mm. will it fit into my business? Will, like you said, will it, will it help me save that time? Like you promise on your sales page or will it save me that money that you promise? Mm. And th- yeah, that's really how we shop as a consumer. And it's kind of switched, moved over now to, how we buy software. Yeah, it's really just kind of the the psycho the psychological use of reciprocity. Like when mm, by me giving yeah. you something for free with no expectation or giving you something for free, you can't help but mentally see that the weight the scale is tilted now in your favor. Like, oh I owe that company something in return. So mm. that's how Costco gets you. Like they'll give you a bunch of free samples and you're like, wow, I can't believe they just fed me. I should probably buy that thing they fed me. So it's a, it's a classic <laughs> so cool. move, right? It is. Yeah, it totally is. What kind of pain points would a SaaS business be feeling in those early days if they're interested in going towards the product-led growth and they see that as, as the right direction? What pain points would they be experiencing that would help them to make that decision that 
that's the right marketing and product direction to be going in? Yeah, I think it really depends on a few things. The culture of your company, like for a lot of sales-led companies, you have a ton, a ton of salespeople, and that requires a lot of sales training. And at the end of the day, that sales training is hitting your your customer acquisition costs essentially. So, like for a lot of sales-led companies, what they're seeing is that their cost of acquisition is really high. But it really also depends on your product price. If your product is really expensive, you're hoping that you know this makes up all the sales team that you're having. You're managing you're man, you're managing a huge team, right? You really have to manage a huge team and have that sales mindset to to take that approach in the B2B world versus product-led. You can be a marketer. You can be a product person and you might be introverted like me who I don't, I'm not really great. I've tried sales, man. I, I, I had a sales job. Didn't last a few, I really didn't last a few months in, in that role. And if you're, what you want your culture to be is about delivering features and products and really like delivering value first, then that's what I, that's essentially where you, you probably want to be more product led. So I think the pain point that going back to your question is, do you want to have a lot of sales team? Do you want to manage that sales organization? Right? As a founder, as a, a executive team, is that, is that you? Is that like, do you have sales ingrained in you that you can manage other salespeople? If not, then maybe that's not an approach because then you might have to hire VP of sales. Second is, do you, do you want a long sales cycle? I mean, for some, they, they, they're okay with long sales cycle because they're selling a $100,000 product, right? If it takes them two years to sell that product, that's fine. But for some people, there's, you know, they want the quick wins. You're not going to get like really quick, quick wins with, with waiting two years to, to close that, that whale, that huge deal. So I think that's the second pain point that that this does address is you're seeing a lot of data come through and you're probably getting a lot more quick wins with with product led because you you are seeing people try it out. On the on the the other side of that is yeah a lot of people do try it out and you do have tire kickers. There are people who are just trying it out just for the fun of it or just because people said it and that's I think that's where the crux and and uh, user onboarding does come in. Mm. It sounds like product led marketing and product-led growth requires like a, you need to take user experience very seriously Mm, because in this case, your product is your salesperson. It's, it has to do all the heavy lifting of teaching, of educating, of Mm. applying, getting quick wins for them and closing a deal at the end of it where your trial ends or you're only, you're pushed up against the edge of your demo. The product needs to be have marketing layers built in to close mm. the deal and close the sale without necessarily a salesperson stepping in. So you, you've provided me with a couple good examples of what a product marketing tactic could look like. But first I'd like to ask you, can you give me a bad, a bad example <laughs> of what a product decision could be that, that maybe a lot of SaaS companies have in as part of their onboarding right now that they don't realize is actually really hurting them in the long run? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that people don't forget, uh, the people forget, is the user onboarding is the moment where like users try out your. It's a first a first impression, really. Like, it's the first impression of your uh, new users with your product. I imagine it's like a first date, right? 
with a first date, you're going to take a shower. You're going to put on great your, your best shirt. <laughs> you're going to take them. If you're going to go to a coffee shop, you want to make sure that coffee shop is, is not in the middle of like a really weird spot where like there's, there's bad stuff happening outside. You got to put your best impression forward. And what I'm seeing, the biggest mistake with you, that user onboarding uh, make is that they're assuming that they're that the person already likes them like you don't you go on your first date you don't know if the other person likes you and they make them jump through hoops an example of this is when they you sign up you put in your email yeah you, you click sign up and then the first image that you get is please act go to your email activate your email like come on man i i don't even know you i don't know if i should check my email for this i understand it's like preventing spam but there's two things that they could have done just by saying activate your email now, just like that. First, there probably are tools to validate emails. They're trying to remove spam, right? There's actually other plugins that they can use to validate email addresses. Second, like you got to talk like a human. Like uh, the biggest problem that people have is a copy and product marketing all and messaging and positioning all makes sense. Don't just say activate your email. Why are you telling me to activate your email? One of my, the, the, my favorite copy I found is with full story. They do require you to activate your email, but they say, please activate your email. This is to help prevent spam and to make sure that we pro- provide the best onboarding experience to you. So they're giving a reason why. And for me as a person, okay, I understand now why you're making me do this, right? You're, you're asking, you, you know, I, I'm getting something in return. I'm going to get a, a personalized, better onboarding experience just by activating this. So I'm not a spam. So sure, I can do that. So I think that's the biggest mistake I see is assuming that they're already fully bought in and making them jump through hoops like activating emails or doing other things like making them fill, a bu- uh, fill out a bunch of fields, like 15, 20 fields. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I like it when companies kind of tongue-in-cheek talk about the the legal side of the business so like validating emails and all the gdpr and privacy stuff i really like it when companies just say hey like thanks for activating but our lawyers are insistent that we have this one extra step it's good don't worry it's gonna it's gonna make everything better but we really just need you to check your email and then we won't ask we won't bug you again like Copy like that. that is that the kind that's the kind of stuff that I honestly find enjoyable and like entertaining. And it adds that layer of personality, like, mm. you know, yeah, but it's still kind of like a salesperson, right? Like in a sales conversation, mm. they're not going to sit there and be very robotic and give you answers, right? Mm. They're going to build rapport. And that sales copy or the marketing copy, I don't know, if you just call it copy at this point. It's kind of building rapport. You kind of have to still be friendly mm. and fun, right? If that's part of your brand. One thing that really gets to me is like, I, I don't know what it is, but the copy in the signup or onboarding several times, it's like very robotic. And I love what you said there. You have to sign. It is your salesperson. It is, you said it. Your product essentially is your salesperson. Make it sound human. <laughs> right? I love what you just said. Hey, lawyer. <laughs> hey, it's sorry. It's, it's a lawyer who made us do this. Please, please do it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's jump in and talk about how like onboarding. Let's let's chat about onboarding because I see that as really it's the first it's your first impression mm-hmm. and how we as marketers can turn those free trial users into paying customers once they they just absolutely love that onboarding experience and see the value of that product. So so set the context for us a little bit. Are we uh, talking about people who have 
looked at content on our website and something called them to action and they, they hit submit and they now want to try a free trial. Is that the kind of angle we're going for? Yeah, I think that's essentially where, whether they, some people have gone through the website. That's the problem is like, there are people who will sign up and not read anything else just because they want to check it out, just because their friends told them so. And, and that goes back to like, we, if let's assume that they haven't read anything else, make sure to, you know, describe your product as well on the onboarding. That's what I would suggest. Yeah. Okay. Okay, great. So what are the, so what are the three things that make for a really great onboarding experience? Yeah. Before I talk about that three things, I just want to make it clear that this is a big problem. Like there's a study that Intercom said that 40 to 60% of SaaS apps that they look at, I think they look at uh, 537 or something like that. For users who try their app for the first time, 40 to 60% actually end up signing up once and leaving right away, right? That, That really says that a lot of companies that I've talked to, a lot of growth teams, there's two things that they focus on. The first thing they focus on is how do we get more signups, which is acquisition. And on the other end, what kind of features should we implement for our current users? So user onboarding is at this middle, like it's like that middle child that everybody's forgotten, essentially. Yeah, so, it's not cool. You like want to grow more people <laughs> and you want to have the best product, but no one cares about the like the actual customers who are like about to buy. Yeah, exactly. That's that's what's happening. And it's such an important thing because like the user onboarding, that middle piece when new use when users like checked out your website or whether they didn't, they're signing up, they're at the middle of a decision point of deciding whether they're going to stick with your app forever as a lifelong customer or leaving your app forever and just telling people this is this is the worst experience I've gotten. I've had that experience as well, where people are telling me don't do this. Mm-hmm. So with that problem in mind, I've like checked out a few onboarding and uh, bro- broke it down and looked at it. There's three things that really like that I find really resonates and builds that high converting user onboarding experience. The first one is when we assume that people are not fully bought in yet. The first thing that the user onboarding experiences that I, I've seen really do well is they really make sure they amplify the need of the user, right? And a big example of this is Wave. Wave is this invoicing app where you can create some a professional invoice easily. But as soon as somebody signs up, one of the things that they reiterate as you're signing up is, hey, yeah, you're creating an invoice. It's going to look professional, but I love this copy. They say that with Wave, you get paid three times faster with our invoicing app with if you install payments. Not only that, we have sent $24 billion worth of invoices with Wave. This is in the sign-up process. Like they know that people who are still who are on that experience of signing up and trying to onboard to the app, they're not fully bought in. So they've added, first of all, a social proof telling you, hey, $24 billion have gone through this. The problem I see is a lot of social proof shows up on the homepage, landing page, or even pricing page, and the sign up or onboarding experience gets ignored for social proof. Mm. The second second thing they've really done here is they've really driven home that particular need, what they call the customer job, according to the jobs jobs to be done framework. When people send invoices, they're not, the main job they're not, uh, they're trying to do with an invoice is not to send that invoice. Their main job really is to get paid. 
And with Wave, what they're emphasizing is we help entrepreneurs like you get paid three times faster. Like, come on, who, who, who doesn't want that? So that's one thing that they've done. Another thing that they've done to amplify the need is as, as you're signing up, they ask you, please upload your logo here. So I upload product at Institute's logo and they've done something super magical. I, when the first time I saw this, like, man, this is amazing. What happens is that when you upload your logo, they pick up your brand colors automatically. So they picked up the yellow from the product led Institute, the black. And right beside to the right, they show you what a beautiful professional invoice would look like with Wave. And I got a chance to talk to Vivek, the head of growth at Wave. And he said, after talking to uh, the customers during their customer discovery phase, some of the feedback, oh, this looks great. I, this really helps me build trust in Wave as being able to send an invoice versus like probably your people, uh, current entrepreneurs are sending it through Word document or I've gotten one that's Excel. Like, come on, like sending an invoice with Excel, that's really crazy. <laughs> so like, Matt, they're really emphasizing once again, the need for Wave that is easy to create as professional invoices. So that's the first one. Can I can I pause you before we go on to the sure, second one? Correct. I was I was hoping you would pause. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want you to get too into it. This seems almost counterintuitive, right? Because ideal, like in theory, the copy of like get paid faster was on the homepage, right? That's mm. kind of like the the initial copy that someone would read before they would even put their email. You're saying that we actually want to repeat all those pain mm. points in the onboarding sequence. Well, is that just so we can really emphasize the pain, like show them why this is actually going to help them? That's a really good uh, point that you made here. You know, I was a teacher at a college for a few years. And one of the biggest ways to get people to learn something is repetition. Hopefully when you repeat something enough, because the first time you say something, chances are they're not paying attention, right? They're, they're like on their phone, they're sleeping, they're checking Facebook or TikTok or, or whatever, or LinkedIn or Twitter. And the second time you say it, hopefully they've heard it. And the third time you say it, it's starting to like hit it home the point that this thing is important. So that's mm. what I would suggest. It's even something that I've heard a copywriter give me advice. Josh Carr followed from Sway Copy. He's like, you know, if you want, your customers or visitors to believe something repeat it enough times in different ways and they're hopefully going to start believing that it, that it's true okay okay great so we do want to repeat it and because uh, then they know that that's the thing you want them to pay attention to like that's yes the, that's yeah the thing, 100%. Right? okay cool yeah. that that makes a lot of sense i know for me for sure it definitely takes a couple times before i i pay Same. attention <laughs> yeah yeah okay cool let's move on to point two then yeah, so that's the first one, amplify the need. The opposite of amplifying the need is really to break the objection. So you want to be thinking about, you, you said it, I love what you said, your product is the base, best salesperson. And one thing sales, the best salespeople I've talked to do is they know their obje- the customer's objections. They have something called ballot cards even, where they've listed out a bunch of objections and here's my response to it. So essentially, I think that's one thing that you have to be aware of is what are the ex- objections and wh- how, can I, how can I address that even before it comes up? Big, I love this example from UserList. It's a customer mes- messaging app for SaaS products. And essentially, what they do is they're very early stage. So they require a credit card for free trials, which I'm not a big fan of, but they, give, they 
they have co- they repeat and once again they repeated it twice this this copy here in the pricing page as well as the first step on the sign up page they say they say to to new users hey heads up we're going to require a credit card the reason why we do that is to prevent spam also the founders will give you a better experience to for your onboarding because now we can really focus our time on on people like you so they're 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 really once again emphasizing the desire for new users to have a great onboarding experience because a lot of people have probably signed up for something and they they just get dropped into something as like boom you're here and like you have no idea what to do next so they're driving home that point hey you're going to get something out of this by providing a credit card and we're not going to charge you and we're going to give you heads up before we charge you for your credit card when your trial is up so I really love that they're they are anticipating that objection that when they get to the third step of the sign up page where they require that credit card, you're not going to be surprised. I I've said this before. Surprise is the greatest enemy for user onboarding because surprise causes anxiety, right? When you're like, oh my goodness, where am I? It can cause excitement, but for often for onboarding or for anything new, surprise is. It causes like nervousness. Like I, I don't know what to do. Should I back out? And anxiety is bad for 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 new users because they might just completely run away. So I think that's definitely the third point is, you know, know your objection and make sure to address that whether that's through the copy or through visuals. That's a super important one. Yeah, and and you would know those objections by speaking with <clears throat> customers beforehand. So these are these are well known points that you just need to predict and know that they're going to happen and actually be proactive. So in that case, mm. like I, I pulling a credit card is a huge, like all of a sudden I'm like, whatever, I'm, I don't need this. I don't need this that much. Like my credit cards in the other room, like whatever I, I'll, I, I won't, I'll come back later, but I won't. But just by that small amount of copy saying, look, mm. this will be a better experience for you because we can eliminate all the people who are junk and actually pay attention to you. And so people who are junk aren't going to do it anyways. And then the people who actually pay it are like, oh yeah, right. okay, that was a really great experience. I'm glad I put my credit card in. That's a very cool point. I like that a lot. Mm. And another place to, somebody suggested to me once, I forget, like another good place to find objections is your support tickets. So if there's mm. a bunch of objections or some kind of questions that you keep getting over and over again from what is your current users, or new users, or even people who have left your app for good, who are churned away, make those questions are super important that maybe you should address right up front before they even sign up or get onboarded. Mm, mm, that's a really good. That's a really good place to find objections. Awesome. And then third point. Yeah, the very last point is to make sure to commit to change. You said it earlier, the aha moment. Like that is the first value that you get from the app. A lot of user onboarding, what I find is they, once they, the user gets the aha moment or once they pay their first invoice, they stop, they think the user onboarding job is done. Like they've paid, they've, they've converted. The problem is that, you know, I, f- I forget where it was, whether that was through Redpoint VC or another place where they did a study. The biggest gap in terms of people who churn is the first three months. So the point here is that just because somebody converted, just because somebody got that first aha moment, just because they paid that first month's invoice doesn't mean user onboarding is done because user onboarding's role is not to convert. 
the end goal of user onboarding is to help people to fully embrace your product and become essentially a lifelong customer. It's a retention lever at the end of the day because if they understand you, the value of your product, they use it over and over again. That's, that's success for me for user onboarding. So when I say committed change, there's this thing in Silicon Valley, what they call the magic number. And people are probably familiar with Facebook where, you know, if you add seven friends within the the first 10 days, then they're more likely to stick around. This is actually a pretty standard thing that a lot of Silicon Valley startups have. Slack is another big example. So Slack is this messaging tool for Stuart Butterfield. He was interviewed. User onboarding doesn't end until a team has sent 2,000 messages. And what they found is the teams that send 2,000 messages are 90, 93% of them are still with Slack today. Wow. And they say, so yeah, so that's the point here is like, we got to figure out what are those product engagement metrics that correlate with that pe- uh, people sticking around. Like Twitter has the same thing where Josh Elman, he, he used to uh, be in the growth team at Twitter where they found that Twitter users who don't add 30 other Twitter accounts within the first day are more, less likely to stick around with Twitter. Right. So the point here is, can we, look at, can we look at our cohort of right now long-term users? What did they do very early on with our product? What are the product engagement metrics that they've done that really shows that they've committed this change, they've embraced this product, they've embraced this habit, and now we know for sure that our job is most likely done. Mm, that's a really cool way of putting it. Do you have any tips on how a team could identify what that user engagement kind of sweet spot is that they should try and strive towards? Yeah, this is a great uh, question. This is something that you have to do with trial and error. So what you want to do, first of all, figure out who your best customers are. The ones that have stick with, stuck with you through through re- recession and through sunshine, through re- thick or thin, yeah. right? Figure And then out of that set, that, that cohort, figure out what they did very early on. What are the things? So now this is like really digging into analytics. You're really digging into what, what are the common things that they've, they did early on. And then the, after you figure that out, you set a hypothesis. Like if, if companies, if new user does this, what percentage of them end up being with us three months later? So that's just that's one way that you would do it, just using that process. I can provide a link. Actually, Andrew Chen, he he used to do be growth at Uber, and I believe he's now with uh, Anderson Horowitz. He actually responded to a Quora question on Quora, on Quora, essentially, and he listed out how to get the magic number. But it's essentially that process. Figure out who your best customers are. Second, what did figure out what they did. Third, create a hypothesis. Fourth, once you have that hypothesis, test out the hypothesis and figure out if it's true. That's awesome. So you do need to have enough kind of momentum Mm, and customers and forethought that you can uh, afford. Well, you need to afford to do this because you've already put all that sunk cost into acquiring this customer. You may as well put some effort into trying to keep them because they're (laughs) there already, right? Yeah, that's so true. I think that I think that's one thing that people forget, especially for product-led companies, is some of those users you might have spent a dollar, like ad dollars, on acquiring those. This is use, focusing on user onboarding is just such a great lever, not just for attention, but also for revenue, because like you've 
just spend a lot of money, maybe, or even a lot of content to acquire, to rank for certain keywords for this, let's, let's figure out how to deliver the best value to them to make sure that they actually end up sticking around for a long time. They're like a newborn baby. You got to kind of take care of them for the first couple of years or the first 2,000 messages that they're sending in Slack before they're actually able to walk and figure it out themselves. Now that, now that you've mentioned this, I just I can't help but think back to an onboarding experience where you're using a new piece of software and it gives you like five steps. Like here are the five tools you should learn how to use right away. And it kind of like has flashy speech bubbles and they'll like pop Mm. in one corner saying like here's how you do this and here's how you do that and then once those five things are done then you're just sitting in this like very (laughs) static portal and you're like where the hell am i supposed to go like what am i supposed to do next i don't even know how to start a project or do whatever it does i i've I've felt that too many times to know that Mm. that's just a very unfriendly position to be in yeah totally 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 agree i've been in that position many many times and it's it makes me cry inside because like man like you're you you're spending money on acquiring me i might have clicked on a facebook or google ad yeah and now like you show me five pop-ups to do this and this and this and now like what what do i do (laughs) what are what are some things that the best product-led companies know that that really sets them apart that other companies don't know I think you've mentioned it earlier. I like the the biggest drawback of product led company is that you can be hide behind a wall. Like you can hide behind the code, you can hide behind the design, and nobody is talking to a customer. Versus a sales led, there's always like at least the salespeople are talking to some customers, right? Versus some product led companies where like they're just making a lot of assumptions. Some of the best best product led companies that that I've talked to have this ingrained, this ethos, this culture of user research, like really talking to customers, really like having analytics, analytics tools like Full Story or Hotjar. And what, you know, the team at Wistia, I got a chance to chat with Andrew Kaplan. He used to be the director of growth at Wistia. And now he's at Postscript. What they do is something called Full Story Fridays, where literally during lunch, they would watch, they would watch, New users sign up to their product and watch where things are breaking. This, who, who oh. thinks this is fun? But they love it because they're like, where are my users getting stuck? Where are, where is the problem points? Where are people getting excited about? And just having that culture is something that product-led companies need to have or else they, they will lose touch of the, the customers and really just not survive. Oh, that's a very cool idea. And so, so sorry, the tools you mentioned were Hotjar, H-O-T-J-A-R. And what was the other one? It's something called Full Story, F-U-L-L-S-T-O-R-Y. And it's very, they're both very similar. They essentially record user behavior tracking where they're recording videos of users on your product. Okay, cool. And that works for both web and mobile products? Yep. Cool. Yeah, that'd be super helpful to even just see how people do it. And then I think also you kind of have to hand it to, if you're looking for places to break it, hand it to your least technical savvy friend and just watch some button mash. I don't know if that'd be helpful or not, but maybe maybe it would, it would offer you some insight as like if it's intuitive enough. That's funny you say that. Like one of the best user behavior book is something called The Mom Test by Rob Apart. 
I forgot his last name, but it, it's like the go-to book for like making sure your, your product is great. It's called the mom test. Like if Rob, your mom, yeah. Rob Fitzpatrick, Rob, you got it. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So the mom, <laughs> <test is laughs> <not your different. laughs> that's hilarious. I like that a lot. Remley, what are, what are some of the trends in terms of product led growth that you're seeing are going to be really important in the next 18 months? Cause I've seen a couple kind of B2C products get launched. I don't know if they were because of COVID, they kind of took this launch angle or they were going to plan that anyways, but they're very much like word of mouth driven. Like they, they launch mm. to a very small crowd. They build a lot of hype and, and excitement, getting it in the hands of like early, early, early adopters. And oftentimes these people are have audiences or they are influencers of some type and they have a deep want for this product and then they slowly kind of put out a beta and then they launch it and then they make it like a big deal that this thing is now out and everyone just rushes to it. So we've got like, Hey, that email okay, client, yeah. we've got a uh, clubhouse that like messaging mm. platform. What, I don't know if that, those are just kind of examples of trends that I've noticed. And I'm sure that is kind of like a growth le- lever as well. What are some that you're paying attention to? Yeah, I think one thing that I'm really paying attention to, that's a really interesting case study with Hey. But on the other end, the incumbents have to wake up. Like companies that are still charging 250 to 500 to $1,000 a month, they're going to get their lunch eaten by the small companies. Because especially with what happened with the pandemic, the companies have crunch down their marketing budgets. And really, this is something that actually Patrick Campbell, he's the CEO of ProfitWell. He he suggested this, that the the people, the companies who will win at this time will be the, the ones that hold on to the most users. And what that means is that, you know, when you have a, a very expensive product, you're going to only have a handful of customers potentially and what you a lot of big companies have started to go towards and they're exploring. That's the reason why they're exploring product-led growth as a go-to-market strategy, especially these enterprise companies, and they're transitioning to it, is that they're, the cons- consumers have now become very budget-conscious and offering something for free or free trial or some, some kind. And it doesn't have to be your core product. Uh, a company in actually in Calgary, based out of Calgary, or Edmonton uh, called Vendesta, instead of offering their whole suite as a free option, they only offered one product as for free. This is actually something HubSpot did where they didn't offer HubSpot marketing as a free trial or a free account. They actually started with something called HubSpot sales where that they offered that for free first before they transitioned that go-to-market strategy to their flagship product, which is HubSpot marketing. So really, I think that one trend I'm seeing over and over again is that instead of going up market and targeting bigger fish, I'm actually seeing the opposite end where a lot of companies are going down market and really protecting the the base of their customers, uh, making sure that they they don't get uh, their lunch taken away by a startup like Hey or something that can launch with a lot of fanfare, offer something for free to transition to a premium and then really like just leave your product for good. Mm, that's very true. And and as we see people breaking up these massive companies or, or kind of what's it called? Unbundling. That's when you've got like a 
ton of features. And then a company comes in and says, well, they don't do that feature that well. Let's make that feature our entire product and let's unbundle and take that and just do it really, really well. So it kind of, we're in this, what feels like a moment of unbundling where there's mm. a thousand companies that could spin off what Excel does. And they are doing that because like you said, like invoicing could have been done through Excel. Same as mm. like, like growth tracking, but those are two now separate companies. One is just doing invoicing. So I find that super mm, interesting. Yeah. Remley, last question for you. We mentioned a couple kind of like foundational marketing skills that really help, help you in your career as a growth marketer. That would be copywriting, it sounds like, being comfortable speaking with customers and really learning that. User experience, it seems like that is, it's helpful to at least know the basics. And you can learn a lot of that about through product blogs and stuff like that. What are, what's a, what's a skill that you're currently working to improve? Home. (laughs) Yeah, I think just for me, and I'm still trying to figure this out, is how, you know, with all this new stuff coming, like, you know, whether that's user experience or copywriting or other things like that. The one thing I'm still trying to figure out and starting to improve is I'm learning, I'm trying to learn better on how to learn, essentially. So, you know, with a lot of this stuff happening, how do I learn faster? How do I learn deeper for things that that I, I'm doing? Whether that one of the habits that I'm trying to place into my life, especially with like, one, I, I just want to run. I just want to rush and just build stuff and just go is to take pause every Saturday and just like have no laptop, have no phone and just uh, read a book, just read a book, whether there's a business book or a general book and just allow ideas to just connect. And I think that's where, where growth happens is when at the intersection of so many different things, we, you talked about copywriting, you talk about UX, you talked about design. When you, when, when, I, when whenever I take a breather, those those are when the best ideas come. Like whether I'm taking a shower or walking the dog, or even in, on Saturdays that I've started taking that that days days off laptop or, or or my phone, I've actually started like seeing dots connect more. And I I write this down in in a journal. So I think that's one skill that I hear over and over again from from people who are in, interested in growth or even in marketing is that. You know, like, how do you learn? And it's such a dumb question. If you think about it, it's like, <laughs> what are you talking about, Bradley? How do you, what do you mean? Like the school system didn't prepare us for learning. Like when I went to school, you read a book and you regurgitated information in the exam. I really, you know, that's not how we learn in the real world. Like you're not regurgitating information, especially for something that's like cutting edge when you're pushing the boundaries. What do you read? <laughs> <laughs> what, are you, what are you reading? Like, there's nothing to read. Like, you have to figure that you have to allow time to connect the dots and really just, you know, like, just let it simmer, let it, let it breathe. Like, mm. it's like that yeast with the bread. You have to let that bread breathe first before. I'm not a bread maker, but I was watching a YouTube video about this where you really got to let the, the, the flour and the yeast breathe before you actually bake it. Yeah. That's a great answer. And that applies to everything. That's not just a marketing answer. So I'm happy, happy to hear that, that that's something I certainly, I've tried screen-free Saturdays before, and it's, it's pretty remarkable how distracted things can be. If once you put those away and you're like, Oh, there's a lot of, I have a lot of ideas in my head. I don't need to go find a blog post. I've read enough blog posts. Now it's time for Mm. me to like connect my own dots instead of Mm. having it spoon fed for sure. 
Awesome. Ramley, thank you so much. This has been really, really insightful. Ramley's also got his own podcast where he talks about this all the time. So go check that out. Uh, it's called <laughs> Growth Marketing Today. You can check it out at growthtoday.fm. But he's also done a ton of work at documenting user onboarding experiences. And you can find, you've got Hey, you've got a couple other kind of consumer products that people would recognize. And you can go find that, his complete teardown of what they did well and what they did poorly over at onboardingteardowns.com. Remley, thank you so much, man. Thank you so much, Stuart. And I'm excited talking about the podcast. I also have Stuart coming on. So I'm excited to release your episode to talk about podcasting and just growing your network. So excited, man. Yeah. Awesome. Cheers. If you enjoyed anything that you just heard, you're going to absolutely love what I'm about to tell you. If you go online to stuarthillhouse.com and hit the subscribe button, you'll be added to an email list where I share exclusive content related to this show. This is where I'm going to share my key takeaways from each episode, including my highlights, top of mind takeaways, and next steps that you can do to put this advice to action. I also share some real-life breakdowns of marketing campaigns that I'm seeing around and how I'm using it in my work. So head on over to stuarthillhouse.com and hit the subscribe button to get your first email. Looking forward to seeing you there.